Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 95. Well, I am back in the United States after an absolutely incredible experience at the Walker Cup at Hoylake. Tons of great memories and stories to share. I will get to them all eventually, but we have a great guest on this episode. So let me just say this. If you have ever thought of attending the Walker Cup, do it. You are able to witness the future stars of the game up close and personal in a competitive environment with a very casual feel. It doesn't have the commercial feel of a PGA Tour event with VIP lounges and stadium seating. You're able to walk right down the fairway with these guys, hear the conversations with their partners and caddies. It is such a pure golf atmosphere. And if you needed more convincing, here are the next three locations for the Walker Cup. In 2021, Seminole here in South Florida. In 2023, the Old Course at St. Andrews. And in 2025, Cypress Point. Are you kidding me? What better way to plan a golf trip than to include attending the Walker Cup for at least one or two days? This entire experience would not have been possible without many, many people and the support of AmateurGolf.com for sending me over there to cover this event. So thanks to Pete, thanks to Kyle, thanks to Julie for all of their support. I hope to do it again in 2021 at Seminole. I'll be sharing many of these stories on social media throughout the next couple weeks, so make sure that you're following along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of the links are available in the show notes of this episode. If you were following along last week on Instagram, you probably noticed a lot of the video updates that we did from Hoylake. That was my first time doing video, which is a lot different than doing a podcast. So as always, I need your feedback. Let me know what you liked about the content that we provided last week. Let me know what you'd like to see done moving forward. Let me know what you'd like to see in the future. I'm also giving away some swag that I picked up over there at Hoylake, ball markers. We've got some of our towels. We have all sorts of stuff here. So again, make sure you're following along on social media. We're going to give some stuff away all throughout the week. Please keep leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts. You know how important that is. And again, Everything you need is at the website, thebackoftherange.com. This week's guest is the victorious U.S. Walker Cup captain, Nathaniel Crosby. Now, this episode was recorded just a day or two before the U.S. team was set to leave for Hoylake. I had it recorded and was going to get it edited and sent out before I left, but with Hurricane Dorian approaching South Florida, I decided to leave a few days early. Therefore, this episode didn't get posted until now. However, I think that this episode is a little bit more interesting to listen to now that the Walker Cup has been completed. Captain Crosby shared his thoughts on how tough it was to ultimately get the team that he wanted, what the preparation looked like, and we also spoke about his experience on the 1983 team at Hoylake under Captain Jay Sigel. Oh, and you know there's no shortage of funny stories in this episode because, well, it's Nathaniel Crosby. Before we get to this episode, I'd like to urge everyone to donate to the relief efforts in the Bahamas after the devastation of Hurricane Dorian. I've put a couple links in the show notes, so check those out or donate in your own way, but please keep the people of the Bahamas in, in your thoughts. 
So let's get to it. Let's welcome in the victorious United States Walker Cup captain, Nathaniel Crosby. Captain, how are you? Doing great. The best I can with what I have to work with. <laughs> okay, well, um, you got a lot to work with going over to Hoylake. You have this incredible U.S. team. We'll kind of get into that a little bit later, but... You know, there's there, your storied amateur career. We're not going to, we're, we're kind of short on time, so we're going to kind of skip over some of your individual amateur highlights, but uh, definitely Walker Cup experience and no coincidence that you're you're going to be captaining the team at Hoylake. Your sole Walker Cup appearance was in 83 at Hoylake. Obviously coming off a Porter Cup win and, and Eisenhower Trophy appearances, what were kind of your first recollections of, getting started with trying to make that team or the summer leading up to the 83 team? Well, you know, for me personally, I kind of got the easy road because I won the U.S. Ambler the week after the previous Walker Cup. And then and now it's pretty much a fait accompli that you're going to make the team if you're, uh, if you're won the U.S. Ambler in that two-year body of work. So, you know, I didn't have to uh, grind or strive. I think the, uh, Eisenhower team, it's only three players now. It was only four players then. You could win a U.S. Amateur and still uh, miss out on that team. So um, the following summer, I was low am in the open and, and won the Porter Cup. So that squeezed me onto that team and had a great, great experience in Lausanne, Switzerland with the, uh, with the Eisenhower team that we won. Well, so you had a little bit of an easier route, maybe similar to maybe what Cole Hammer and Akshay Batia and um, you know, I, I think looking back, you know, Hagestad and Brandon Wu were, were, I guess, obviously three and four, but more like three A and three B with all the the incredible summer that Brandon Wu had. How have you related to some of the guys that are really trying to make a push to make the team, knowing how hard it is on them just bouncing from tournament to tournament? I guess, you know, what's been your relationship and process of getting to know these guys? Well, the, the interesting thing is I think a lot of the guys, I, mean, I really got the team that I wanted. Um, okay. You know, save, save a few players, but, you know, the guys that narrowly missed, especially the one that was first alternate, I think Chandler Phillips won 12 college tournaments. Yeah. Which I don't I don't think that's been done and since maybe Tiger Woods. <laughs> big shout-out to Chandler. I think only six of the five or six of the 12 were in the last uh, two years. But, you know, Chandler really wanted to make the team, and that was really sad. He hung around and didn't turn pro. Um, but Andy Ogletree was unbelievable. He was uh, lower in the rankings, although he, he was second-team All-American, and, and I, I hadn't focused on him the last couple of years as much because he was lower in the rankings. matter of fact, I was watching his teammate, Tyler Strafasi, at Georgia Tech a little bit more. And um, then, uh, you know, after watching his game in the practice squad this past week, he is – you know, an incredible amateur champion. He hit the ball probably higher and softer than any other player in the practice squad, which explains when how successful he was at Piners when you're hitting into those pitchers' mounds with faked out green. Absolutely, you know, hitting yeah. it high, hitting it high and soft was a, a huge advantage. And Andy probably hit it higher and softer than anybody else on the team last week. Yeah, and and it's funny he was not. You know, I did. I, I did a road to Hoylake series here at the back of the range and I focused on a lot of the top guys and uh, you know, he was, like you said, he was kind of coming in at about 100 or 115 in the world amateur rankings, but he did have, I believe a top 10 at the North South. And I kind of missed that one too. You know, uh, 
he was second team all American. So yeah. the rankings didn't really treat him very fairly somehow. And uh, I, I think the, the world amateur golf rankings really reflected uh, the college players pretty, pretty steadily, but there were a few guys, I think Peter quest and Davis uh, Thompson, uh, a couple of others that didn't really get their due with the rankings for whatever reason, maybe they, they played too many local tournaments. Uh, I know that that's the case with Matt Parziali, but I, I had been watching the rankings and really studying the players for the last year and a half and virtually got everybody, uh, really all, all 10 of them were, were players that I had focused on with the exception of Andy, um, you know, as far back as a year and a half. I mean, John Augustine was outside the window coming into the U.S. Amateur, and we're texting each other back and forth the week before, and I'm like get your act together and start playing and I'll watch your back. But you know, wow. he, uh, he really played great at the amateur and, um, you know, shooting 65 in the first 18 of the finals, you know, would, would have knocked out anybody else in any other given year. And, uh, to Andy's credit, he really hung in there and stayed within shouting distance and, you know, was able to come back from, uh, you know, from incredible golf from John in that first, in most of the second round, really. Yeah, the the thing that I found really fascinating just following it at the Western, I know you're at the Western Am at Point of Woods, obviously. I know you're at Pinehurst for the USAM, but it's really the last two tournaments where these guys had the opportunity to really distance themselves, and it seemed that either many of the guys didn't make match play at the Western, and then it seemed all of them made match play, or a, a lot of them made match play at the USAM, how do you gauge that at the last two important tournaments before you got to select that team? Uh, I let you just, I'll kind of let you speak to like, what are you just looking at their individual performances? How do you gauge that after a big, you know, body of work that they've put together through college and then other events? I think it's, uh, you know, first of all, I have a significant input, but not a say so or a vote of course in the process. And then there's uh, seven votes on the committee, but you know, I, I think that, um, you know, certainly Brandon Wu and, uh, you know, Isaiah Salinda and um, Stephen Fisk, he would have been almost, regardless of how they played the Western and the U.S. Amber, I, I think it would have been hard to have taken them off the team. Alex Smalley won Sony Hanna twice. Yeah. He, did, he didn't uh, play the Western, and then he lost in a playoff for match play. But, you know, Alex is somebody that we've been watching for a couple of years and, and uh, you know, incredible soft-spoken, but incredible talent and really sneaky long. So, um, you know, it's just, uh, you know, you never know because uh, if there were more unranked players that had gotten, uh, you know, to the semifinals or the finals, it could have thrown, you know, more of a, more of a deal. But really... You know, what happened was John was outside the top 10 going in and did what he did and obviously combined that with his already high ranking. And then Andy, you know, came in from not being ranked very high, which probably wasn't a just ranking, but sure. he wasn't ranked very high. And, you know, so there were a couple of guys that were inside the, the deal that got bumped, you know, Chandler being one. But, um you know, it's always hard. I mean, uh, Robbie Salesnick, who's been the team manager for the last five or six uh, teams, is just like, 
it's excruciating when you get down to having to make the final choice and having to pick, you know, the, the you know, the nine and 10 spot over the 11 and 12. And, um, and, you know, it certainly was no exception this year. It was a very, uh, emotional and, and difficult, you know, process, but, you know, we couldn't be happier for John who I've been watching for a long time and for Andy who, you know, proved himself at the amateur and has an incredible, incredible game. And, and, uh, you know, but he's the, he's the guy that I'm getting to know, uh, for the first time and, and, uh, really enjoyed his company and getting to know him last week at the, uh, practice squad matches at Pinehurst. Yeah. Well, I, w- I want to ask you a little bit about those practice sessions, the one uh, in December uh, down here in South Florida, and then obviously this one that just wrapped up at Pinehurst. But I, I want to kind of hit back on 83 at Hoylake for, for your experience playing. The thought of having mid-ams on a Walker Cup team is something that's been discussed over the last several years to you know great extent, whether there were you know, there were two on the 2015 team, uh, McCoy and Harvey. And then obviously last time it was just uh, uh, just Stuart Hagestad. He's back on the team this year. When you played, I believe you're around 21, 22 years old. You had you had a lot of mid-ams because back in the 80s, it was a little bit of a different different scope and different feel. Uh, you know, you had Lewis and Holtgrieve and obviously your captain, Jay Sigel. How much did you remember having those guys on the team, having older amateurs? How much did that help you? And I guess, are you looking for, for Hagestad to do the same thing on this team? You know, the world amateur team, the Eisenhower in 82, it was, I was the only college player on the, on the 14 squad. It was yeah. The whole Creve Lewis and uh, Bob Lewis, who was in the uh, semifinals and the finals of the two previous amateurs and, um, uh, Creve Lewis and Siegel. And then, uh, it was the same guys on the Walker cup team, as well as the mid amateur champion, Bill Hopper. Uh, I think that was right after the second mid amateur ever. So yes. the mid amateur was kind of new to the world, but I think the USGA has included the mid amateurs in the Walker cup for the sake of promoting the game at the mid amateur level. I think it, it means it makes the Coleman cup. It makes the mid amateur important. It makes, um, you know, a lot of the other uh, tournaments that are only, you know, even the, the crump cup at, at Pine Valley, it gives some uh, meaning to those tournaments other than just the tournaments themselves so that they have some uh, contribution toward making the team. I think that Great Britain and Ireland didn't match uh, the commitment of having to put a mid-amateur or two on the team. So I think we stepped it back. USGA stepped it back uh, before the last event so that there's only one, uh, it's only a mandatory one mid-amateur on our team and, Look, Stuart Hagestad uh, is no—he's no handicap. Uh, he, oh, of course not. Definitely, he's got a game that is—he's uh, long, he's straight, he hits a low fade, he puts it from a hook to green with the best of them, and um, that is really going to be—he's uh, probably going to be one of our stronger players uh, because of the type of course Oil Lake is, but. When you ask about my my personal experience at the Walker Cup in '83, <laughs> Jay Siegel, after I was I was the third ranked amateur uh, in the country the previous two years, but um, to Jay Siegel's uh, credit, um, I hadn't played much competitive golf that year. It actually was a fourth year red shirt, so I could catch up on my studies after playing about 40 tournaments the year before because I was invited. I was playing college and uh, a lot of tour events from as an amateur. And, um, 
redshirted uh, my fourth year to play a fifth year to get my degree. And Jay had recognized that I wasn't um, playing terrific. I wasn't playing bad, but I wasn't playing terrific, and I got beat in the singles. So he benched me twice. <laughs> and the funny, the funny part, now it's funny, but it was a lot of baggage for me for many years, um, is that we had a captain's dinner in West Palm Beach a couple of weeks after I was announced as the captain. I think there were eight or nine captains there, and everybody was going around the table giving me advice. And when it was Jay's turn to get up and talk and give me advice, he said, Nathaniel, whatever you do, play everybody three times. And then I downloaded on it. <laughs> I, oh, I, called him, like, I cussed him out a little bit and said, I've been hanging on to this baggage for 35 years, and I want to let you know that you've been twice. Yeah, you, so, you so, played only two so of the now, four sessions. Yeah. So now, uh, and Bill Hoffer and I beat their best team in the alternate shot the second day, uh, which was Philip Walton and George McGregor, and I played great. So it, it um, basically uh, made the experience a great experience, but it, <laughs> it could have been kind of a, a downer if I'd have lost that match and uh, left, left a, you know, with 0-2 participants. So, you know, I intend to play every uh, player three times, and it gets a little tricky, but... Um, you know, everybody is uh, this is this team especially has a lot of parity. I think, you know, Cole Cole last summer was by far the best amateur in the country. I think um, American amateur. I don't think he, you know his Western amateur medalist in uh, winning the Western amateur. I think that's only been done three times, and then he almost did the same thing at the U.S. amateur if he hadn't run into Hovland. Yeah. So you know, it's just um, you know an amazing. Uh, run last year for Cole, and you know when I look at you know how Brandon Wu he he played so well in the U.S. Open this year, and he did it easily. He didn't make a lot of long putts. I was watching most of that, so I, I just think that we we paired them together at Pinehurst this past week in the practice squad. We made them play alternate shot for five rounds, and and we paired them with each other um, with different players every time. So that nobody, we don't really have anybody cemented with anybody at this point. Um, and we want to just make sure that everybody plays three times. Nobody's going to leave with a bad taste in their mouth. And the only message that I have for these guys is that it's going to be a lifetime memory. So you want to win for your own, for the sake of your, for the sake of your 50 year memory going forward, right? Or 80, 60 year memory or sure. 70 year memory. You know, you don't want to. You don't want to remember the Walker Cup, um, you know, in the disappointment. You want to remember the Walker Cup um, for the, the gratification of winning. And, um, you know, because it, it, it'll never, you know, there'll be a lot of Milwaukee Opens. There'll be a lot of Hilton Head. There's going to be a lot of a lot of tour events. And, uh, you know, I only played three years on the European Tour. And even in three years, the, the tournaments kind of run into each other. And you, it's hard to almost distinguish the one from the other. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you play 15 or 20 years on the tour, I can't imagine trying to remember, was that, was that 80, was that 2024 or was that 2026? Yeah. Yeah. All those, yeah. A T7 at, uh, at the Honda is, is going to get lost in the shuffle, but, uh, you know, winning a match on the 18th green at, at your only or one of your only Walker cup appearances, that's going to, that's going to stay with you for life. I would imagine. 
I would. I think so. I mean, I'm not underestimating the the great experiences that these guys are going to have right. on the PGA Tour or or elsewhere, and in some of the incredible memories and moments and heroics that they're going to accomplish in the in the upcoming decades. And you know, this this team in particular just seems to be, you know, really solid. They're they're very sure of themselves. There's some there's some flashy guys on the team. Uh, there's some understated guys on the team, but. We, we really enjoyed the camaraderie of, of playing together in, you know, in the practice squads. And they, they did talk a lot of smack, so they fit in with their captain pretty good. Oh, yeah. I definitely, I like to talk, I like to give them a little smack so that they can, there, there's no, uh, it's not easy being a Crosby for my kids, so it's not going to be easy being, <laughs> these guys aren't, these aren't going to get any special treatment. There's no kissing up around around the Crosby. So, um, and these guys were giving it to each other last week. So we're, you know, it, it was so much fun and I can't wait for them to buckle down and get, uh, uh, get into the competition next week. But we've got about five practice rounds and then a, a round at Burkdale, uh, to show them that course. Uh, and we're leaving on Friday. So it'll be a long week. I'm hoping for, uh, fair, but windy weather. I think that, uh, you know, you know, when my European tour experiences, it, you know, you have to get used to the rain. And, uh, you know, if we're over there for seven days of golf with uh, rain every day, it's not, it's not unusual. Right. You know? So I've tried to give them a, a heads up on that. And, uh, but, you know, also, you know, let them know that, um, you know, there's a, in some you know, a lot of these places, there's no air conditioning. So you don't want it to be hot either. Oh, of course. Yeah. No, they're going to, they're, they'll, they'll be hit with just about anything and everything you mentioned. Uh, I, I, I have to ask you, you know, you, you give the needle then and they're talking smack. I know it's going to be hard to pick, but, uh, you mentioned it's, it's not easy on, on the Crosby kids, but these are kind of your adopted kids for at least this week heading over across the pond. Um, if you can not comparing games, but which, which one of your players seems to, have uh, the most Crosby-esque ability of, of talking smack and giving the needle. Well, that's a pretty easy one. Okay. Augustine is, uh, is definitely a, a flashy guy, and he is giving it out on every shot, on every hole. He also gives it to himself. I, I kind of deemed him the, the John McEnroe of the team because he's, he's, a, he's oh, an incredible player. He's an incredible player and has a bright future. He might have to control his violent mood swings. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, so so we we need to keep rules officials away from Augustine so he doesn't pull a "you cannot be serious" thing. Uh, okay, so we'll we'll keep him away. Uh, he's uh, he's a solid solid guy, and I talked to his uh, his bandy coach, and uh, I guess they've come a long way to get him to where he's at. So. <laughs> We've got to deal with where he's at right now, but he's 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 amazing. I was just, he was having trouble hitting the fairway the last nine holes of the practice squad matches, and I said, "Hey, that's just a Red Bull crash. Try not to drink five Red Bulls a day, and you'll probably you'll probably maintain your energy level a little bit better." Oh God! <laughs> oh man! Um, let me ask you this: one. I talked to Jace, I talked to your captain Jay Sigel earlier, and I had to ask him about. You know, it's, it's, you know, we're all golfers. We get new stuff, new gear, shirts, bags, all that stuff. And I said, do you still have any of your, your Walker Cup stuff? And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I've given a lot of it away. But 
I still have my 1977 Walker Cup bag. It's small, it's cloth, and it's pretty ratty. Um, do you still have your 83 stuff? You know, uh, I don't. And, uh, you know, I, I think I couldn't get my – the pants wouldn't get over my ankle. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, my sweater, you know, I need a pair – my son says, you know, I, I asked my son the other day if he'd seen what, if my shirt was in his – closet or if he grabbed my shirt by accident he said what would i need with a parachute oh (laughs) Oh my god (laughs) so um i you know my somebody my i think my son brendan found uh my old world amateur team travel bag and took a picture of it um but i haven't actually seen it i've seen it on on instagram and that's about it i've lost i've lost all of my my old um you know collectibles from the Walker Cup, but uh, but you know it's funny. I have a picture that we took of the team and framed it, and I have it on my den wall with some other memorabilia from my amateur career. And Brad Faxon's a neighbor, and he came over for a party a year or so ago, and I said I got to show you my den, Brad. And uh, I said here's what you'll do to your den or your house. You'll have a room like this when you're a failed when you have a failed professional career. He says, yeah, he says, I got all my Walker stuff, Walker Cup stuff, but it's in the, I think I got it in the basement somewhere. He says, it's not on display. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, so he's got the PGA Tour stuff and you're, you got the Walker Cup stuff. What, uh, yeah. what have, uh, now I, I've seen limited pictures of the guys uh, at, at Pinehurst and every picture, it seems like they have a different pair of shoes, shirts, hats, bags, um, you've probably been involved in a little bit of this, but are they going to be able to get all of their new gear onto the plane and over to Hoy Lake? Well, it's interesting. We took all of our items uh, from Pinehurst and all brought them home. And I told the team manager, I was like, that is an accident waiting to happen because somebody's mother or sister or nanny or whatever, <laughs> I mean, we're all going to get, by the time we wash our stuff, and fold it and iron it. Somebody's so, going to have a miss. Yeah. Somebody will have a missing item. And uh, and to be honest with you, some of the uh, you know we didn't quite get the full. You know, a couple of items were missing for certain players. And uh, you know, so I'm waiting on a couple of Oxford shirts as we speak before we leave on Friday. But um, you know, getting everything there, we, we're going to be over there a week ahead of time, so we've got plenty of time to to make amends. And and we're only. Uh, you know, the, the uniform needing to be exact, exact, you know, just for the matches and, and, you know, the ceremony. Of course. So we'll, we'll get it figured out. Oh, yeah. You know, I know when I spoke with Captain Holtgrieve, one of the really important things that he had mentioned about his experience being a captain is not just the things on the golf course, but also getting the guys to really understand that uh, you're representing your country. I know that they went over to look at the uh, – the nine eleven um uh monument area and when during twenty thirteen when they, they played at National Golf Links. Uh, I'm wondering is is that been discussed with the team or anything any sort of the patriotic aspect of being on a Walker Cup team? Is are there things planned over there uh, or have there been discussions maybe perhaps at Pinehurst, anything different that maybe casual fans of a Walker Cup would not know as far as what the team's done? I, I think when we, you know, asked everybody or everybody was interviewed, I, I was I witnessed a lot of the kids getting interviewed, uh, players, I shouldn't call them kids. Um, 
I, I watched a lot of them being interviewed, and I think that it's it's all um, you know. There's a lot of uh, it means something to every player, and I heard that in their interviews. Uh, we haven't gone airborne about it, uh, you know, or I haven't tried to use the flag to motivate so much. Uh, but but I think that it, uh, you know, when I grew up, it was watching the Summer Olympics in, you know, Mexico City when I was seven years old. And I was actually at the Munich Olympics with my family um, in 72 and watching Montreal in 76. And, and um, you know, it just, it, it's such a um, amazing deal because for me, there wasn't a, there wasn't golf in the Olympics at that time. And of course it was always the Olympics back then and amateur uh, participation in the Olympics was dedicated to non-career oriented. It was all adolescent. It was all teenagers and uh, athletes in their teens and their early twenties, Sure, you know, still in college. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a dream team and it wasn't all that. And somehow this part of their life, the playing for your country is more exciting than it would be perhaps when you're much older. And you kind of see that with the basketball in the Olympics now. And I think the golf in the Olympics has finally arrived. It's fantastic, but you know, there's somehow, uh, I'm remiss that, uh, those events aren't held for true amateurs that are, you know, in their, you know, approaching their professional careers and not, ones that are already in the middle of their professional careers. Right. Well, um, I know that we have not hit on your amateur career. I know you, you played collegiately at the University of Miami and obviously U.S. Amateur Champion 81. And, yeah, you know, son of Bing Crosby, I know that there's, there's I think, one of the, the – a fascinating book that I, I would definitely like to mention to people listening to this podcast is your book, 18 Holes with Bing, Golf, Life, and Lessons from Dad. And I've – I've read the book and there's so many great things about, you know, the, the Crosby clam bake that eventually turned into the AT&T, uh, uh, you know, national pro-am. And there's several great stories there, but I am wondering if you would be so kind to share a, a, a Ben Hogan story, which I thought was just fantastic in the book, but, uh, you've, you've had some time playing with Mr. Hogan, didn't you? The interesting, uh, scenario was that my dad's best friend was George Coleman. Yeah. The Coleman was named after and George Coleman uh, managed to uh, block. He was a, a board member of the Pennzoil uh, company and Ben Hogan was, he was flying Ben Hogan around in, in the DC three playing back then while the other players are driving from uh, tournament to tournament. But uh, basically the great story about Ben Hogan is I got a chance to play with him shortly after my dad died, George Coleman, uh, I'd kind of grown up with him on family vacations and he took a special interest in me because of our common love for the game of golf. And he invited me to come down and, and play with Ben Hogan for four days and spend new year's, uh, dates between Christmas and new year's. And, uh, we, it was amazing. I got to, you know, spend all that time with him, not only on the golf course, but staying at George Coleman's house. Uh, we had, uh, dinners. You know, we had dinner parties where George Coleman looked like a Palm Beach, where uh, Ben Hogan looked like a Palm Beach socialite. Oh my gosh! But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you wouldn't expect you wouldn't expect it, but you know, I had just finished reading the book "Go for Broke" by Arnold Palmer, and you know, it, it describes 
you know, Hogan shot on 17 at Cherry Hills where he sucked it into the water. Yeah. And uh, I, I asked him at dinner one night when it was just uh, George Coleman and his wife, Dawn, and uh, Ben Hogan and his wife, Valerie, and myself as a 16-year-old. Oh, wow. And I asked him, I asked him about, you know, that shot. And Valerie says, don't ask him about that shot. He still has nightmares about it. Oh. And Ben said, no, 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 no. I'll tell him about it. And he, you know, he described the shot that he hit perfectly and it hit a pitch mark in the green because, you know, the U.S. Open and, and Ben and in many years forward, the greens are like concrete. So he expected the ball to bounce forward sure. and bite. The ball hit in a pitch mark and um, didn't bounce and sucked back into the water. So, that was, uh, but he got through his demons by telling me the story only because I was 16 and anxious. And the other story that was kind of interesting was I had a, uh, we were packed up to the last day. We were going to, you know, pack all our bags and they're in the trunk of the car and we're getting our clubs out of the trunk. And I have a, you know, we all used to blow dry our hair with these handheld blow dryers. We used to call them in the seventies. Sure. Because everybody had a, everybody had a mop and, and Ben Hogan picks his hairdryer mine up and says, what's this? I said, well, it's a hairdryer, Mr. Hogan. And he says, well, he was dumbfounded. And he looks at me and he said, well, whose is this? And then I look at my shoes and I was like, oh, boy. Uh-huh. You know, it's, my, it's mine, Mr. Hogan. He <laughs> says, but Nathaniel's hairdryers are for girls. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that kind of found its way uh into the forward of the of the Ben Hogan Mystique book by uh, where the forward was written by Ben Crenshaw. So, at any rate, that story will live in infamy. Well, I uh, I'm glad you're able to share it. I'm going to put a link to the the book in the uh, notes of this episode. I I enjoyed the book because well, I'm I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you told the the Hogan hairdryer story because uh, I read that and I'm like oh gosh of all the people to have to tell you of a hairdryer to. Ben Hogan is probably yeah. not. Oh, that's not the person that's you want. To, oh no. Hair, hair dryers are for girls, Nathaniel. Oh gosh, <laughs> Captain. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're getting all packed up and ready to head head across to uh, to Hoy Lake, and uh, you know enjoy you know not just enjoy uh, the time over there, but enjoy the captaincy and and best of luck to you and, and the rest of the guys. And uh, hopefully we'll get to catch up and do it again soon. Thanks so much. It's been a it's been a real lifelong experience uh, i'm so grateful to the usga for picking me um i can't even tell you it's not just what's going to happen next week the whole the whole two-year experience has just been uh, amazing and one of the great times of my life and there you have it another great episode here at the back of the range golf podcast special thanks to nathaniel crosby the victorious United States Walker Cup captain. Congrats on the achievement. Congrats to the entire team and the USGA for all that they did. Remember, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review at Apple Podcast, and we'll see you again next week here at the Back of the Range.